Singer-songwriter Johnny Cash, he once said that I was born the running kind. And, and I can relate to Mr. Cash in that I, I was born the running kind for sure. I, I grew, up as, grew up on the east side of Columbus, Ohio in a small town, kind of in between the cornfields and Columbus. And there I just lived a quarter of a mile away uh, from a little league ball field. And I grew up loving baseball. I loved Nolan Ryan, I loved King Griffey Jr., and all, all sorts of the heroes of baseball legends that were in my day or to, to this day, and, and even back in the day. As you can see, I was built for power. <laughs> and uh, I spent many summer days and evenings and in afternoons at that Little League ballpark, and on I went into play into, uh, on in my life. And I remember whether it was practice or games or home run derby, we had so many fun, so much fun. And one particular day we were bored one summer afternoon, and that's always the preface for a bad decision, isn't it? And we were bored one uh, summer afternoon, and my friend's dad, he was uh, a man that chewed red man chewing tobacco. And we knew that a lot of the pros chewed red man chewing tobacco, so we thought we will even be at a higher level if we will have a big old chaw in our mouth. And so we one that afternoon snuck into my his dad's room, stole a brand new pouch of red man chewing tobacco, and went out into the cornfield on a three wheeler and opened that baby up. And we had all these thoughts of grandeur, like this is going to be the start, and this will carry us into playing the major in the major leagues, and we'll be so cool because we'll have this chewing tobacco. So we opened it up, and we didn't know how much to to take or anything. So I just grabbed this huge pile of chew and I put it in my mouth, and my buddy does the same thing, and we're just sitting there pretending like we like it and uh, nothing really happens, so we just swallow. We didn't know what to do. And so a couple minutes goes by, and we're like, well, let's get, maybe we need some more. So we get the rest of the chew, and we put it in our mouth, and about 20, 30 minutes goes by, and we're having a good time. And then all of a sudden, I look at my buddy, and he's three shades of green, and I said, you don't look so good. And he goes, no, I don't feel so good. And he got sicker than a dog. And then... Just a little bit later on, I'm doubled over, and he goes, green, you're green, you are sick. I said, yes, I don't feel so good, and I got sick. And we laid in that cornfield the rest of the afternoon, so very sick. To this day, when I see Red Man Chewing Tobacco, I get a mental picture, an image of that, of that moment. But that, that would begin a, a pattern in my life that has been echoed over and over and over and over and over again. And that is that, that I would pursue something that the high would last and the high would go away and all I'd be left with is emptiness. And I, I pursued all kinds of things in, in, in my journey and I'm not going to go into all the details, but you can fill in the blanks. And I'd pursue this and that and, and, and this and that. And as I did, I went through the same rhythm of, of, of enjoying the high and then I, they would fade away and the emptiness would, would linger. And over and over again, I would pursue all of these things. And, and my family would go to church almost religiously. But I despised the God that this, the church was representing. I viewed it as a, as a cosmic killjoy the, the things that were happening in my own home. To be quite honest with you, I thought, how in the world could God be allowing these things? And yet at the same time, there's this God that the church represents. And so I didn't want anything to do with God. And I was pursuing all those other things. 
Well, uh, fast forward into time, my mom one day convinced me to attend this church with her, and it was in uh, Pickerington High School cafeteria. It was a church plant, and there, in a packed cafeteria, I discovered the footsteps of the God that was following me. See, up until this point, I remember laying in my bed at night on the top bunk of my bedroom, putting my head on the pillow, thinking and knowing this, that even though I didn't want anything to do with God, He wanted everything to do with me. He was pursuing me. He's, his steps were right behind me. And I remember that day in that cafeteria sitting there, and I met the God who was pursuing me, and I, I surrendered to Him. I, I surrendered to Him, and when I did, I met the God who I didn't think I would meet. I met a God that, who wasn't waiting for me to turn around so that He could squash me and make me pay for stealing red man chewing tobacco and make me pay for all the lives that I'd hurt and all the things that I had, maybe even the laws that I had broken. But he was waiting for me. He was the God that didn't want anything from me, but he wanted things for me. And what he wanted for me was to have life and life to the full and to experience eternity, folks, with him. Not, not in a place called hell where, there's, where there is no peace, there is no love, there's everything that our soul desperately actually cries against. And this relationship with Jesus began, and I met this Jesus, and it was a completely different situation for me, and the relationship began to grow, and I get, got passionate about Jesus, and I couldn't help but just tell my friends, and, and things began to change, and, and, and my relationships changed, and I found myself going to college, and I graduated college, and I found myself actually stepping into full-time ministry. And that step of faith took me from leaving Ohio, traveling to Dallas, Texas, where I knew no one, and I entered into grad school. But things began to change in grad school, and here's why. That I was working a full-time job, I was going to night classes, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment, I was writing like uh, probably hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of papers, I was reading almost 20,000 pages a semester at times, I was completely and utterly exhausted. And as I began to get exhausted, I began to burn out. And when I began to burn out, this thing called Jesus began to fade in my life, and it, began, it became this checkbox. It became this cemetery, if you will. It became a, a, a set of mor moralistic uh, lists as opposed to a relationship. And one day, I was about ready to just call it all off, and I'm sitting with the one guy that I know in Dallas, Texas, in his back porch, and he knows how I feel, and he looks at me and he says, Ray, Jesus, he loves you, and he's pursuing you. And even though right now, even though right now the, you feel no uh, emotion towards him, and even though you just feel like you're going through the motions, the only motion that he is going through for you is towards you. And it just broke me down once again to know that God was still pursuing my life. It's the God that pursues. And maybe today you, you've been chasing things. You've been thrill-seeking. You came here today, and it's been a while since you've maybe stepped foot in a church, or maybe you've come every week, but you find yourself in that season, but you sense there's something or someone who's pursuing you. Or, or maybe you're a Christ follower today, but it's become more of a, a duty as opposed to a devotion. Or maybe today you, you know about the love of God, you know about the pursuit of God, but it's always been academic. It's always been something that has been more of something that is a thought-through process as opposed to a supernatural experience. Here's the good news, that the God who pursues you and I and the world 
this is the preaching series that we're going to be entering into called Pursued. And we're going to be looking at this book called Hosea. That My wife, Sarah, she just read to you chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. It's actually sandwiched between Daniel and Joel in the Old Testament. And, and Hosea is considered a minor prophet. If you don't have a Bible, you can use a smartphone, or perhaps you don't have those, you can use the Bible that's in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for, to give you that Bible to you as a gift. Take it home with you. We'd love for you to read it for yourself. We're going to be going through the book of Hosea in this series. And each day, starting tomorrow, we'd like to send you a scripture from Hosea via email. And along with it will be a helpful tip. If you'd like to enter and get that information, just email us at grow at gracelandbaptist.org and we will gladly send you an email every single day in the morning so you can read it and gain helpful tips to understand this incredible book. In this preaching series, I want to encourage you that you would bring your friends and your family members and your coworkers. Be intentional about inviting people. I just met so many new people that were brought by people that are attending, and that is a great way for them to be introduced to the God that pursues. So let's begin. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It says, This is the word of the Lord, which was revealed to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the time when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, these were the kings in the south, and then Hezekiah ruled Judah, and during the time when Jeroboam, the son of Joash, ruled Israel. These are the kings in the north of Israel. These are two different kingdoms. So you have this one king, Jeroboam, who just died, and he had ruled well. These were the good old days of Israel. The, the economy was great. The population was up. Everything was up and to the right. The fourth quarter uh, report had been out. Economy was doing great. Jobs were up. Everything is good. They're living a culture of ease. This is Israel. And even though their beloved king is dead, they're still enjoying some prosperity. And then we look at verse 2. It says, When the Lord spoke through Hosea, he said to him, now, before we go any further, maybe Hosea, he's thinking, okay, God has something to say to me. Maybe it's going to be good. Maybe I'm going to be king. Maybe he's got some great news for my future. Maybe he's going to, about to tell me something that's going to unlock the mystery of the universe. Who knows? But look what he says to Hosea. He says, go marry a prostitute. Now, in some versions, it says a promiscuous woman. We get the idea, I think. Go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution because the nation continually commits spiritual prostitution by turning away from the Lord. Now, are we reading this correctly? I mean, is, did you, any of you honestly just do a double take? Like, is this in the Bible? How are we supposed to interpret God telling a man to go marry a woman of the night. How are we supposed to do that? Well, I, I just want to share with you just a few tidbits on how we're to interpret and, and read this. Uh, one interpretation and in reading could be that this is all an allegory. But nowhere in the book of Hosea does it ever prove the point that this is an allegory. Another way that we read and, and, and really understand this book is that uh, Hosea, and we learn about his wife, they would get married and then her unfaithfulness begins. But, but that phrase, go marry a prostitute, it cannot be uh, translated later on she'd become that or she had tendencies of. It's very literal. So we're going to interpret this book in, in my humble theological opinion. We're going to arrive at the point where God would tell Hosea to go love, romance a woman of the night who worked the street corner, to love her the way that she was to be loved from the very beginning of time, 
um, by God to do it in a physical way to paint an unbelievable, vivid picture of the kind of love that God has for all of humanity. And his kind of love, it, it goes from the, 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 the noun zone of love to the verb zone of love. That, that even though there is offense that, that God is pursuing, he's not only pursuing Hosea and, and here Hosea's future wife, he's also pursuing Israel and he's also pursuing us. And, and this is vivid and this is striking, but should we think anything less of God? You have the Old Testament and all the different ways that, that God would paint a picture of his love using different characters. And then you have the same later on God using the vivid picture of his own son to go up on a tree to be crucified, nails driven through his hands for the sake of all humanity. So can we really doubt or really not understand the fact that God would use any possible means to communicate his love for us? Now, can you imagine what Hosea's thinking? Like, you've got to be kidding me. You want me to go and do what? With whom? Hey, Mom, Dad, I got good news and I got bad news. Which one do you want first? How'd that go? Hey, the good news is, is that I know who I'm going to marry. The bad news is, is that you see her every night at the corner. And on top of it, her name is Gomer. And when I think of the word and the name Gomer, I think of Gomer Pyle by, from Andy Griffith. Don't you? Yeah. So I, I don't know, maybe the story goes that the, the prostitute is, is working her same corner because that's where her income comes from. And here this man of God approaches her. And, and, and we can know this to be true, that even though this man of God is a prophet, there was nothing in the law at the time that would declare that he wasn't allowed to do this. The priests of the time in their culture were certainly not allowed to do this, but the prophet, it was fair game. So he goes and he walks up to her. I can only imagine what she's thinking, and I can only imagine what everyone else is thinking as they watch this take place, and he begins to romance her. And he begins, maybe they go out. I don't know what happens, but over time they would become engaged to be married. It, it, it re, I recall the time that I would propose to my own wife. We went to this concert, and I don't remember anything of the concert because I was so worried about how the night would go. I don't remember anything of it. I was so nervous, and the whole time I was saying, hey, are you doing okay? And, I'd all, and then I'd say, hey, relax. And she'd be like, what's your problem? Will you just relax? So I made up this story about going to a friend's house, and they would be there, and they, they said this, this fib to Sarah that they had, they had car trouble, and they'd left the door of their, of their house unlocked. And we'd walk in the door, and I'd planted the ring, and, and there I got the ring out, and I got the courage, and I got down on one knee, and I asked for her hand in marriage. And friends, if you don't believe there's a God, the proof that that beautiful woman said yes to this man is proof there is a God. <laughs> what a good day that was for my life. In verse 3 of Hosea, it says, So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and then she conceived and gave birth to a son for him. So Hosea may be thinking, okay, we're turning a corner. A child will bring us closer together. Maybe there will be faithfulness for her towards me. But then again, you see that God says, would you name him Jezreel? And name him Jezreel because that brings to mind the kind of account that had happened 
to this valley of Jezreel. It was a moment of bloodshed for these people. It wasn't a very pretty picture for this nation at all. And so every time that they would have called out the name Jezreel, it would have been like saying and naming that child Hiroshima or, or, or Twin Towers, scholars would, would estimate. And then we'll continue to read in verse 6. It says, She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to him, Name her No Pity. And in the Hebrew, this is the name for pain and anguish. So I would say that Hosea and Gomer are 0 for 2 when it comes to naming their own children, wouldn't you? I remember our, our second born, who we didn't know if she was going to be a, a boy or a girl. It was a surprise, and we had a, a, a boy name picked out and a girl name picked out. And, and previously, we, just, we really liked the name Jade, but we couldn't come to name our daughter Jade Green. We thought, man, she'll never hear the end of it, right? So we said, you know, we really like the name Emily. If she's a girl, we like that name. And she was a girl, and, and, and we thought, what a great name. She is our little Emily, and we named her Emily Joy because she just do, does bring us joy. And she's so funny how she just says the funniest things to us. And every time I see her, I just think of her middle name. And you just get this wonderful picture of when you think of a, a child and, and their name, but then when you think about these children's name and you think about their parents calling out their names, what kind of agony would, it would bring. And then in verse 9, the Lord said, name him, another child, not my people, Loami, because he says, you are not my people and I am not your God. If you know the beginning of the, of the Old Testament, all you'd, you'd be reminded that God had promised Moses that I am that I am, that I am your God. And now God is saying, I am not your God. What a juxtapose of position here. It's like this universal breakup. It's painful. And every time Jose and Gomer would call out this person's name, they would be reminded over and over and over again of the emotions that God had towards his people. So does this mean that God is angry, that God is negative towards his people, I think it just gives us a, a greater picture of his love for his people. Because anyone who didn't love someone, they just would have walked away. But no, he's, he's declaring his emotions. He's talking it out right here. And if we were to end the sermon right here, this would be a bad sermon. This would be bad news. This would be a, a horrible breakup type of story. But then we re keep reading in verse 10. Look at it with me. It says, however, in the future... The number of the people of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can e neither uh, measured nor numbered. Although it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. He's flipping and reversing every single child's name that Hosea and Gomer would have. And he's bringing restoration to Israel. He's bringing restoration to Gomer. And all of the pain of the first few verses in chapter 1, they all discover and turn to purpose in the later half of the chapter. And that Israel and the world would experience the mercy of God that we can enter in a covenant through Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this entire story is that Gomer's story is my story. That Israel's story is our story. 
that I was born the running kind, that you were born the running kind, and yet we cannot exhaust the love of God. That Hosea would pursue his bride in such a radical way, even though there was offense, he still pursued, that God would pursue us in his love. And his love is, uh, is unpredictable, and it's untamed, and it's radical to an unbelievable extent, like a devoted husband pursues the wife he so desperately adores. See, no matter how hard I ran, no matter where I turned, no matter how I pursued all other things, the only thing that God was pursuing was me. And it proves the point that God pursues us despite our sin. The psalmist would talk about this in Psalm 139 in the opening verses here. He says, O Lord, you examine me and know. You know when I sit down and when I get up. Even from afar away, you understand my motives. You carefully observe me when I travel or when I lie down to rest. You are aware of everything I do. Certainly my tongue does not frame a word without you, O Lord, being thoroughly aware of it. That he knows everything about every single part of us. That he knows our entire story. And yet he pursues us in his omniscience, which is a word that means he knows everything that has come and will be. And yet he still pursues us. Even though there is offense, he is moving towards us. And because he's moving towards us all the time, he is always there. Every minute of every day and every moment of the night. Look at it with me in In verse 7, the psalmist continues, he says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee to escape your presence? Verse 9, it says, If I were to fly away on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the other side of the sea, your eyes, verse 16, your eyes saw me when I was inside the womb. All the days ordained for me were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. His pursuit, friends, it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond any kind of love that you could ever experience on this earth. It blows me away. And the psalmist is blown away. In verse 17 and following, he says, How difficult is it for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God? How vast is their sum total? If I try to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. How many times have I pursued all other things when the only thing that God pursues is me? They're they are countless. How many times have I pursued things in my life and God's footsteps are right behind me? They're innumerable. Have you ever realized this in your life? Maybe you feel His presence at this certain time or certain times in your life. Or you recognize Him in the things you read or the things you see or you sense Him reaching out for you in the emptiness after the high is worn off. Or the stuff keeps happening in your life and it doesn't make all the way sense, but you just sense his footsteps in your life. And you're wondering, is there somebody following me? Is there somebody pursuing me? And all the while knowing that there is someone following you, and it's God. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He desperately is radically going after you, even when your back may be turned, even despite your own sin. One of my favorite authors was a renowned atheist. And he would famously, reluctantly surrender to Jesus. His name is C.S. Lewis. And he says this, I'd always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I'd wanted to call my soul my own. You must picture me alone in my bed, 
or in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. Finally, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed in perhaps the most reluctant convert in all of England. And maybe today you're reluctant of the God that is pursuing you. But in this very moment, you're discovering that the footsteps that you wondered are there are, are God's footsteps. And, and we discover that we can, we can enter into a relationship with this God. And instead of running, we can recognize that Jesus is pursuing you and pursuing me because we are born the running kind, aren't we? And it's only through Jesus, friends. And here's the reason why, because we're all sinners, we're all messed up, we all, if you get to know us good enough, we all recognize that we struggle in life. And this sin has separated us from God because God is perfect, and so he sends his son who would bridge the gap, the great divide that we could never get across. If I were to give you a rock and say, I want you to throw it from this end of the building to this end of the building, you might be able to do it if you have a good arm. But if they said, I want you to take this rock to the side of the Grand Canyon and throw it across the other side of the Grand Canyon, you'd be like, there's no way. And that is the amount of depravity and sin we have in our life. We cannot get our way to God. And so Jesus comes and he lays his life down as a bridge for all of humanity. And if we recognize and, and say, you know what, Jesus, would you save me? Would you bridge the gap on my behalf? Would you be my my atonement. He comes into our life and he begins to do this work and we are saved. And when we are saved, what begins to happen is a relationship is born and the pursuit of our heavenly father is finally found. Maybe that's you today. And in just a few minutes, there's going to be an opportunity for you to respond. I'd love to have you respond. Or maybe today you come here and, and you come to this church and you're contemplating, what does it look like for me to actually get connected in a church like this? It'd be a great opportunity for you to respond just a little bit to, to learn and grow and connect. Or others of you may, may be reluctant, or you may not be reluctant about the pursuit of God in your life. But there's something that you struggle with. There's something that is holding you back. And it's exactly what was holding Israel back. And it's religion. And see, God is presenting also through this chapter that religion, it ruins everything. It really does. In Victoria, England, there was this invention, and the invention was the tread wheel. And the tread wheel was put in prisons so that prisoners were punished Today we call them treadmills and we pay big money to put these in air-conditioned rooms so that we can run on them. But how ironic that back in the day they were actually built for punishment. And that's a lot of what they are, aren't they? <laughs> actually, we may need one of these after all the food we'll eat later on at the Super Bowl this afternoon. But the, the prisoners were asked to get on these and they would turn these on and they would, or they would begin to walk and they would put them at an incline. And as they would begin to walk, I think they said this is on, Watch it just blast off here. Okay, it's not working. But anyways, they would begin to walk on this thing and they would be treated to the punishment they were being asked to serve for. And they would just discover that it's meaningless, walking all the time, going nowhere at the same time. 
And the principle of the treadmill is, is that's exactly what religion is. It's doing all these things and enacting all these ways, but at the same time, we're not getting anywhere. That was exactly what Israel was experiencing. That's exactly what was happening in their own life. In chapter 8, verse 13, I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, the people of Israel love their rituals of sacrifice, but to me, their sacrifices are all meaningless. They would go through all these things. They would go to church. They would do all these things. But yet at the same time, they didn't mean a thing. Because they would go out from that place and they would, they would take advantage of people and they were corrupt in their business dealings and they didn't take care of the needy. They were hypocrites. And, and later on, these same nation and these same church people that w- would be called in front of all. Jesus would say, you're just a bunch of whitewashed tombs. See, this is what religion does. See, religion, you can only act a certain way so long because whatever's on the inside will eventually come out. You can only act so long, right? Just ask your family. And what religion says is polish everything up on the outside, get on the treadmill and work hard, but you never really get anywhere to begin with. It reminds me of a story of, of a guy who gets married to his wife and outside of his, his uh, business uh, his business, there's this little flower shop, and he can get $5 a bouquet of flowers. And he buys a bouquet of flowers, and he takes the, the flowers to his wife, and, and she says, oh, that's so wonderful of you. That's great. Well, over time, over years and years and years, uh, the story can, discovers that he's not the greatest husband. In fact, their relationship is extremely torn apart. And eventually she says, just stop buying me flowers. And he goes, why? It's because, well, you know what? It doesn't really mean anything. Our relationship isn't going anywhere. Why would you buy me flowers when, in essence, our relationship is almost to the point where we need to separate? You see, it's in the same way that the greatest enemy of our relationship with God, friends, is that when we, we take and replace being with Him for doing for Him. You know, we forget so many times that we're human beings and we are we think we're human doings. That we're replacing God all the time in our life with all these activities and all these things. And I'm not saying that none of those things are great. But what I'm saying is if we are not entering into a relationship with him, we're missing the point. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, God says, I want you to show, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. God is saying, look, I want you to know me. I don't want you to know about me. I don't want you to know all the theological musings of the world. I don't want you to know the Greek, the Hebrew. I don't want you to know all these. I want you to know me because that's what I came for in the first place. I came for you specifically. Fill your name in the blank because I love you and I'm pursuing you. And oh, by the way, if you have children and you really don't think they're getting the love and grace of Jesus, maybe because they're catching what you're teaching and that is that you're living your life as a parent on a treadmill trying to perform for God when he wants you in a relationship with you. He wants you to get off. He wants you to stop buying flowers. And he wants the real relationship begin to happen. Oh, and another thing. Maybe perhaps you, you struggle. You, you say, I go to church, Ray, and I'm even a member of this church, and, and, and I can't figure out there. I, my life isn't even any different than anyone else. And I, is this whole thing real? 
And I would say, you know, that's exactly what religion does. It tells us that we have to work harder, work harder, work harder. And in essence, that when we are in relationship with the Almighty God, He begins to supernaturally transform our life in ways that you wouldn't even imagine. All of a sudden, your language, it changes. All of a sudden, like the way you act towards your wife and your husband and the way you act towards your neighbors, it changes. It's an overflow of your life. And that's why Jesus says, my burden is light. Because when you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, He transforms your life from the inside out in that. That is our passion here at Graceland. It's not about whitewashed tombs. It's not about what you wear. It's not about how you act on the outside. It's about your relationship with God and all those other things will change, friends. All those other things. It reminds me of just the other day, I was in our basement and I was working on this project and I'm a very task-oriented person and so I was almost to the completion. So at that point, it had my entire focus. And I'm working on it, and I'm, and I'm getting ready to complete it, and my three-year-old just happens to come downstairs. So she walks down the stairs and comes up to me, and she's just staring at me, and I'm just focused. I, it, I barely even noticed she was there. And she starts tapping me on the shoulder. Daddy, 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 daddy. Have you ever had that moment? Yeah. Daddy, 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 daddy. What, Emily? What do you need? Daddy, daddy, daddy. Daddy, daddy, sweetheart, I'm in the middle of something. I really need you just, daddy, daddy, daddy. And so finally she grabs my face like this and she turns it. Yes, Emily, what do you want? (laughs) Hi, daddy. (laughs) And what God is doing right now is he's grabbing your face. And he's turning your face to his and he's saying, I just want you. That's all I want. Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends here today. Thank you for their life. Thank you for the fact that they've come and they've gathered in this place. And Heavenly Father, I I just want to thank you for your pursuit. And those of us in this place here today, God, that we may not understand the love of God, I pray for them. God, sometimes I don't understand your love. I just pray that you would help me understand it more and more. I want to pray for the reluctant runners. I want to pray for those today who are maybe stuck on the treadmill. I want to pray for all of us that we would understand your pursuit and your love. And we would give our gaze to you. In your name we pray. Amen.